The reading today comes from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 14 to 60, verses 6, which can be found on page 1,119 on the Bibles on your seats, or you can follow along with the screen behind. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants, from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Well, thanks, Brian, and good morning again, uh, everyone. If you're new with us here today or been away for a little while or just appreciate the refresher, we are in week uh, seven of a nine-week series on the second half of the book of Isaiah. And some of us on the core team that came from Colonel Lake Gardens to plant this church spent another nine weeks uh, last year in the first half of Isaiah. So after you know, 18 weeks in all, we're coming into the final three sermons uh, across the book of Isaiah, which in its broad brushstrokes exposes humanity's heart problem. Isaiah mocks the futility of idolatry, humanity's gravitational pull towards trusting in and worshipping anything other than the one true God. And against this dark backdrop, Isaiah builds a picture uh, of one being sent from God, coming to rescue his people. Uh, One way to view Isaiah's method in doing so is to to kind of see the major movements of the 66 chapters of Isaiah, is to see it as Isaiah painting three portraits of this person who is to come. And together, they give us a well-rounded view of this sent one, whom from Isaiah's day 
was yet to come from God and walk this earth. And in the first half of the book, uh, chapters 1 to 37 that we uh, looked at last year, Isaiah paints one of these images through the lens of kingship in the royal sense, contrasting this coming one against the human line of kingship and its failures, failures in Israel. Uh, the failures of the whole country, of what God's um, uh, justice was coming to uh, discipline the people as he sent them off into exile. And uh, through this, Isaiah sort of contrasts this king who is to come as the one who displays kingship how it should be, where kings bring justice and fairness and are full of obedience to the word of God, carefully leading the people to walk in God's ways which ties in nicely uh, with some of the themes we saw in our previous series in 1 Kings. And then in chapters 38 to 55, we saw Isaiah paint a second picture of this coming one. As a servant, come to suffer on behalf of his people to bring salvation, peace, great hope and joy to our hearts. And we can look back today, courtesy of Jesus' own words and the New Testament authors, and see that Isaiah was speaking of Jesus. And the climactic pictures of the second portrait of Jesus are the, of the suffering serpent, pierced for our transgressions, uh, nailed to the cross for us. Uh, as we saw a few weeks ago in this just great and very popular part of Isaiah, we can appreciate the richness and meaning and immense significance well in advance of Jesus coming to walk this world as he headed towards this Roman cross for us. And rightly, it's one of the most cherished parts of the Old Testament for Christians today as we see God's love displayed there so emphatically. It is this image of a suffering saviour Jesus on the cross that has been the defining image of Christianity for almost 2,000 years now. Uh, Anita, I'll get you to pop up a slide up on the screen, uh, the next one which I think uh, captures many of the ways we try and represent Jesus. And as you look through that kind of uh, collection of images up on screen there, Jesus on the cross is pretty central to our understanding of who he is. But I also like this photo as in another way it captures some of the many perspectives our world has on Jesus. Jesus as the Holy One who lived a perfect life, gentle Jesus holding a lamb, Teacher Jesus, Suffering Jesus, Reflective Jesus, Last Supper Jesus, but also pop culture, bobblehead Jesus, pronouncing a blessing, ultimate wingman Jesus, Jesus as your first love, followed by closely by French fries. Yet not only in the photo, but wider culture and in the modern church, there is one image of Jesus that is notably absent and it's warrior King Jesus, the third portrait that Isaiah paints for us in the much less read, the much less loved, the much less preached upon final part of Isaiah. And we're going to be looking at this final portrait uh, over the next two weeks. We're introduced to this third picture in today's reading as the warrior king comes with vengeance, pouring out God's wrath on his adversaries. But to grasp a little of how shocking this picture is for us, let me give you a flash forward to where we'll end up in Isaiah chapter 63 next week. 
Just flip over your Bibles, uh, if you've got them there in your seats, to page 1125. Really important, I think, to always have your Bible open when listening to a sermon, so grab one now if you haven't had the chance. And I'll read you the first three verses of Isaiah 63, which are the most kind of vivid of this warrior King Jesus. 63 verse 1. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and it stained all my clothing. Blood-stained garments, Jesus, is neither in the photo we had up on screen or in our wider culture nor in our hearts or our churches, generally speaking. Yet it is Isaiah's third and climactic, climactic portrait of the one we now know as Jesus. So as we set off into our Bible reading today, I hope there's lots of questions you already want answers on. And firstly, if you're here just checking out who Jesus is or thinking about church and Jesus for the first time in a long time, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, you're actually the reason that we're here today. Uh, the Christians in this room all left churches that they loved, people that they would have enjoyed doing life with for the rest of our days for the sake of reaching new people with ultimately what is the best news you can ever hear, the gospel as we call it, the good news of Jesus. My hope for you today, whilst challenging, is that you'll find this portrait of warrior King Jesus one you simply cannot ignore. My hope is it'll stick in your mind and you won't be able to let it go. And you really want to find out more about this Jesus in the coming weeks and months. And as a church, we'd love to help you do that. You are very much in my mind as I preach this sermon on a tricky passage. And I'll try and look after you and guide you through our time together. And for the follower of Jesus, the question I'd like you to consider today is, in what way is my understanding of God and his ways insufficient without this portrait of warrior King Jesus clear in my mind? And once clear, how does it change what I value, what I love and how I live today? Because right thinking about God, shaped by his word, applied by his spirit, it changes our convictions. It shapes our life together as God's people. It rightly orders our passions and changes our habits and our priorities as we begin each new day. So Bible apps open to Isaiah 59:14 or page 1119 of the Bibles on your seats and there's an outline in your leaflets, so let's get into it. Uh, you'll note in the outline I've titled this bit The Ultimate Before and After. After the heady heights of suffering servant Jesus, Isaiah returns to the world with all of its brokenness, idolatry and disorder and it can feel a bit jarring for us. And what it does though is give us God's assessment of our world today. Then Isaiah looks forward beyond the suffering servant's arrival, life, death and resurrection, which we now look back to as Jesus strode this earth 
and went willingly to the cross. Isaiah looks through all that and beyond that to a time still future for us to where God is taking our world to show us what the conclusion to this plan will be. So as we jump in at verse 14 of chapter 59 now, we're hearing kind of the conclusion of God's assessment of things as they stand at present as God views our world and it's not pretty. Starting verse 14. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. And it draws together some threads across the Bible that what God created to be central in our lives, how we relate to him and one another, these concepts of justice, truth, righteousness, honesty, uh, honesty in the way our world works, really are beyond our experience. Now, of course, we make a fair showing of being committed to justice, just as long as it's kind of executed on those we deem the bad guys, not ourselves. We make a show of the value of truth, just as long as it's our truth that suits us not God's truth about himself and how we really operate. In a poetic turn of phrase, Isaiah paints the idea that these concepts are at a kind of distance from us, driven back, standing outside the door. And to try and help us feel just how displeased and appalled God is as he looks upon our world, I'll pop up on the screen one of the most iconic and disturbing photos in the 20th century that generates real emotion. It was taken in 1993 and it's known as the vulture and the boy with this child looking to get to a UN aid station in South Sudan. Now this photo was taken from about 50 metres away with a telescopic lens and the photographer didn't intervene. It was printed in newspapers around the world in the pre-internet, pre-social media era and it triggered a massively heated debate, firstly about who should have helped in this instance, and conflicting accounts arose of what actually happened, but also on another level, it provoked much soul-searching across the world as it made suffering far off in a distant land feel deeply personal. Now, it was clarified that the boy did survive, the photographer won the Pulitzer Prize, an aid agency used it to motivate lots of people to give financially. Sadly, however, the photographer sunk into deep depression and took his own life some four years after winning this prestigious award. Such was his trauma uh, from this event. Now, we see a photo like that and it rightly generates emotion. We are outraged. We are saddened we are seeing that something is deeply wrong with our world. We blame war, conflict, aid agencies, droughts, governments. We give a little to foster the image that we're a generous people. 
Yet as the outrage fades and the picture kind of disappears from our memory and we move on, we prefer to keep such problems at a comfortable distance, rarely sacrificing much of our own lifestyle for another. The reality is, to some degree or another, each one of us can't untangle ourselves from our world's injustice. None of us, from our own volition, seek righteousness before God. We are, at our heart, despite the internal battle, by nature self-focused, and we find sin far too enticing. Every home, every human heart, every community of people, each culture plays some part in suppressing the truth of God in aid of giving ourselves a much more favourable narrative to live by, to alleviate our guilt and to help us suppress the internal battle. So ingrained in our world is this problem that it's a sad reality that Isaiah highlights that those who depart from evil make themselves a prey for those who use their power to abuse the goodness of others. So twisted is our world. We see one image like that and we're shocked, outraged and saddened. Imagine being God and seeing all the people struggling in poverty today, all the abuse in homes, seeing into our hearts the selfish decisions that kind of don't let us break free from this world, our partial commitment to justice. And our world has the audacity to say, is God there? And if he is, how does he let suffering like this happen? Isaiah tells us God is there, he's not indifferent, he sees and he's incensed. You can move on to the title slide now. Anita, thanks for keeping that up. God is appalled that other than making a few token efforts, there's no one really to intervene and make a change. And it triggers one almighty reaction. As Isaiah looks forward beyond our time to when this warrior king comes, read with me from the second half of verse 16. So his own arm, referring to God and his power and might, his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. Now, Isaiah uses a metaphor of God dressing himself for battle to explain how God will reveal himself to the world as the righteous one bringing both, as we've seen very clearly so far in Isaiah, salvation to his people, but on the other hand, vengeance to his foes. And there's the dual idea there of that kind of refrain that if you went back and read through Isaiah, this idea he will repay the islands their due is equally matched and, and far often more outweighted, that this God will bring his salvation across the globe. That is the scope of the Saviour's work, 
It's to go to the farthest islands, to islands as yet unknown in Isaiah's time, like our island home here in Australia. So there's that dual idea of God's salvation reaching to the very ends of the earth, but also God's retribution to the ends of the earth too. And they're held together in Isaiah. Through Jesus, a rightful king, suffering servant and warrior, God will bring both his salvation and justice to the very ends of the earth. And if we're all caught up in this lack of justice, truth, righteousness and honesty, what determines then who gets salvation and who gets vengeance? As God's glory kind of flows across the earth like a flash flood down the outback riverbed, that's been dry beyond living memory. Isaiah paints with these kind of evocative images. Verse 20 gives us the answer. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Repentance here is the determinative factor. It is those who acknowledge their lack of righteousness, how we all have a limited commitment to justice, how we all like to follow our own truth rather than the truth of God, that take up the offer of salvation that we've seen so clearly and so beautifully comes to us without cost, that we can find mercy and grace, forgiveness, receiving an internal inheritance with joy because this suffering servant has paid the cost already bearing the full weight of God's wrath on that lonely hill upon the cross. For those who turn to God's suffering servant Jesus in repentance, God says this, read with me, verse 21. As for me, says God, this is my covenant with them, to the repentant. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forevermore, says the Lord. A covenant is a commitment, like a contractual arrangement, and through it God is saying to all who would turn and come to him in repentance, I will commit myself to you. I will bind myself to you forever. And the spirit that is already on God's anointed saviour who speaks the very words of God, this same spirit will be with us and God's words will be on our lips and the lips of generations to come because God has given it to us. And God's spirit and word transform us. Bit by bit, day by day, we find our assurance in them that through Christ, God has bound himself us. Jesus, Isaiah's suffering servant, brings this covenant to us. He signs it in his blood. Remember this each time we take communion as we have today. As we said in Jesus' own words after breaking the bread, he lifted up the cup of wine saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. We remember this covenant promised in Isaiah, brought to its fulfilment as Jesus went to the Last Supper 
and explained and laid down this pattern, this symbol, this experience for us to come together and do in remembrance of Christ and to remember that God has made a covenant with us. He has bound himself to us for all eternity. Today's passage introduces this picture of warrior King Jesus. Isaiah chapter 63, which we read a little more, develops the image of God's warrior king with much more vivid colours. But between these two warrior king bookends, we see what is the purpose of bringing this salvation and this vengeance to the very ends of the earth. What is the ultimate purpose of the destruction as God... uh, comes to and eliminates all human opposition to him, at the same time, God brings light, joy, peace and blessing. They're two sides of the same coin bound together in Isaiah, which make up part of our understanding of the gospel. So as we get into chapter 60, which we'll do a little bit more next week, and 61, we're seeing what this whole purpose of bringing salvation and renewing the earth, we see what it brings and it's a beautiful picture. The first six verses of it we read before drip with imagery of light shining in the darkness of the world as the Lord in all his glory comes. The first readers of Isaiah heading into or languishing in exile under the disciplinary judgment of God would have just rejoiced at this image of the nations coming to this light And today, this story is no longer contained within a small nation, but these are promises now inherited by God's worldwide church that will one day be shown in all its radiance and joy with every need met with abundance. And verse 6, as these nations come, they not only bring offerings to the Lord, but as they come, they're they're telling of the good news, they're evangelising, they're singing the praises of the Lord. And all that come, verse 7, their gifts and praises find acceptance upon the altar of God. And there's this picture of it beautifying his house in his presence forever. Uh, For those using the daily reading guides uh, on your seats, you would have read these wonderful verses of chapter 60 and 61 on Thursday and Friday just gone. And if you haven't given the reading notes a go, grab a copy today, have a go for the last two weeks. There's such richness there in Isaiah's imagery. God has given us his spirit and his word and we are wise to always use them together. As one of my favourite commentators uh, said in my reading this week, usually quite a a serious guy, uh, he said quite memorably about verse 21 about the interplay between God's spirit and word. He said, without God's spirit, Christians become dry and without God's word, they get weird. I thought that was uh, very telling on why the two need to go together. But if you miss these pages, let me read the climax of chapter 60 for you now. As Isaiah builds this wonderful picture of what this salvation and judgment and this renewing of the whole earth brings, the blessings that Jesus, king, suffering servant and mighty warrior achieves after the final battle is won starting from verse 19 of chapter 60. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord, 
will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never again set and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. This is the ultimate before and after. From before, God looking down on the injustice, the inhumanity, the abuse, the lack of righteousness and being appalled, to God destroying every last vestige of resistance against him, everything that mars our world, the poverty, the selfishness of it all, bringing to an end all human sin, yet out of his great love, saving sinners who turn to him in repentance and bringing them eternal blessings and joy, abundance, beautifying this new world with people from all nations. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful before and after. Brought about by King Jesus, suffering servant Jesus who headed to the cross and warrior King Jesus, bringing vengeance and justice to the very ends of the earth. So now that we've understood a little bit more about Isaiah's message, and we'll continue next week between these two bookends, we want to ask, as we always do, the so what for us question. We never just want to get to know the Bible better. We want to know how it changes us. How does what Isaiah shares here change how we see our world? How does it shape our convictions, our culture, our habits, our hearts? Well, firstly, I want to speak to those in the room who have already come to the Lord in repentance, the Christians in the room. And for those considering Jesus, please listen in. I hope it'll be really helpful and I'll address you directly in a minute. But for the Christians in the room, as I've reflected over this very tricky, difficult passage of Isaiah, my prayer has been that as we introduce this third portrait of Jesus, the warrior king, this week and next, my prayer has been that it enlarges and transforms your view of what the gospel of Jesus is. Warrior King Jesus, bringing God's justice swiftly, like a rushing flood to the very ends of the earth when he returns, is a world-changing event that will affect every person, every tribe, every nation. Those who have turned to Christ in repentance will find that day that they have been nobody's fool in devoting their life to him, because they'll find salvation and a place in the perfect new heavens and earth, as both are renewed. For those who reject Christ and remain in rebellion to God, there is only warrior King Jesus bringing justice and God's vengeance. For far too long, many in God's church have bought into the lie that our trust in Jesus is simply a private religious 
preference. I think that has begun and swept across the world in the last uh, five or so decades. That you keep your thoughts about Jesus private. Religion is a private preference, not to be spoken about publicly or in polite company at a dinner party, if we did dinner parties still. I'd like to bring them back. I've been reflecting on all this week, uh, actually, and I was trying to think um, how to illustrate this point. And then I was uh, up quite early on Friday, um, trying to get this uh, sermon done so I could take the family to the show. So I was up really early, and I saw the news break of Queen Elizabeth's death, someone I've long admired and quite loved. Uh, It was quite a moment, actually, to walk out into the darkness and lower the flags at the RSL where our office is to half-mast and spend a moment giving thanks to God for her. She came to the throne in 1952, and at her coronation, the Queen promised three things, one of which has been conveniently erased from all the tributes. She promised three things, to govern appropriately to maintain justice and, does anyone know the answer? It's been completely missing. And to profess the gospel of Christ. Govern appropriately, maintain justice and profess the gospel of Christ. My, hasn't the world changed a lot (laughs) since 1952? And in her many speeches and television appearances, she quietly commended Christ and her life was deeply shaped by her convictions about him. It was there for all to see. So my ears pricked up in the uh, rolling news coverage when Anglican Bishop Philip Aspinall was interviewed by the ABC about the Queen's faith. And I thought, hooray, what an opportunity. Huge swathes of the world united in grief, listening in. What an opportunity to share something of the gospel of Jesus to a huge audience. But sadly, he fumbled the ball badly. And he let the ABC host just pigeonhole her faith as something to be talked about in hushed tones, shaping her character privately. And despite such a brilliant opportunity, with countless people watching, grieving someone so respected, A person of gospel conviction passing to be with her Lord, like Queen Elizabeth, with so much kind of public sentiment kind of gathered around this idea of Elizabeth making her final journey to be in a better place with Philip. Aspinall just let the opportunity pass him by. God was not mentioned, certainly not the name of Jesus uttered, And nothing of the gospel was shared. It was just pigeonholed into the private religious preference of the Queen. I thought to myself, the Queen would not be amused. (laughs) The gospel is so much bigger than a private religious preference. We shouldn't let society sort of make us believe that. We should not default to thinking about our salvation primarily in our individual tones about me and my salvation either. The gospel, when rightly understood, is world-shattering news that will affect everyone. 
It's exceedingly good news that God has committed himself to the future of this world. We know that because of God's power and because of his love, his grace will triumph permanently and people from all races and cultures from across God's world will find a place of honour at God's table. God's spirit and his word flow across the world today bringing salvation, but there will come a time when both the salvations and the vengeance of God will crash like a breaking wave across our world. As one of my favourite commentators puts it, Christianity is not a private preference. It's an uncontainable power for world renewal. Yes, salvation will come to the far islands of our world, but also God's justice will come with vengeance so that no opposition remains into the next world so it can remain a place unspoiled by sin and that we can be with our God in his perfection. So as we have our moments to speak of Christ in the office, at the school gate, to reflect on the passing of the Queen, at uni on the building site, don't buy the lie that it's simply a private religious preference of the Queen not to be spoken about in our modern world. Let this picture of warrior King Jesus cure us of that. As we use our time, let's put in first loving those around us, building relationships so that we can share Christ. Read a good book on evangelism. Invite someone to carry night. Get trained on how to read the Bible with someone. Let warrior King Jesus and this picture of salvation and justice rolling us across the globe shape our hearts and our actions and our habits. And for the person considering Jesus here with us today or listening along online, I get that warrior King Jesus is a confronting portrait to look at. I get that it raises many a question and many an objection in the heart. It's my prayer for you today, as I said, that this image simply cannot be ignored and that you will look far deeper rather than shy away. Come and join us at our next Life Series starting in October or take up the offer to read the Bible with someone one-to-one. But for now, though, let me have a go at answering perhaps most the, common, the most common objection that we have to this idea of God's vengeance being warranted. Think of it this way. If this is all true, if God's word is correct and God is the loving creator of the world, displaying his glory and majesty in creation, and out of love gave you every moment of laughter, love, food, and celebration that we enjoy, and that we all rebelled against him, preferring to be our own king, living by our rules rather than under his loving rule. Yet because of his love, he sent his one and only son, to die on the cross for us so that he can lift the due penalty of death from our shoulders to show us grace and mercy and take this offer of salvation to the the far islands of our world, welcoming us back into a loving place for us and his family and graciously giving us the status of righteous, being right with God. 
and we reject that most gracious offer, well, what else is left? Isaiah tells us that God has put a date in his diary to rid the world of all evil, all rebellion, all abuse, all poverty, all anger, all brokenness, all selfishness, all injustice. And that he's going to use warrior King Jesus to do that. It's actually a very good thing that God is committed to the good of our world in that way. He sees its problems and is appalled. And if God has offered anyone and everyone a place in this new perfected world, their ticket there provided at his cost, without cost to us, and that we brush it aside in our arrogance, sitting in mocking judgment of God and those who have committed themselves to him, or disguising our rejection of him under a veil of apathy or passive indifference. If we rebel against the creator God and reject the saviour he sends, well, what else is left but warrior king Jesus? Both the salvation of God and the vengeance of God will reach the far ends of our globe. Turn to God and he will bind himself to you forever. <laughs> you are nobody's fool to give yourself to a just king, a loving king, a self-sacrificial king, and a warrior king who has the strength to prevail against all evil, whose love will last forever, and whose grace ultimately will triumph for all who come to him. Let me close this morning in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, painting through the book of Isaiah these three great portraits of your anointed king, the one that we know as Jesus. We thank you that firstly, so clearly, you explained uh, the depths uh, of your love for us, just how far you would pursue us to send uh, Jesus as the suffering servant king to go to the cross to be pierced for our transgressions, to be punished for our iniquities, so that through him we might find peace and joy and eternity. Please help us not to uh, treat this lightly, uh, that despite the plan always being that you're going to raise him to life again on that first Easter Sunday, please help us to dwell for a moment uh, in just the horror of the tear between uh, you and your son Jesus as your right anger against everything that is uh, broken and sinful and unjust and unholy in this world was poured out upon him. Thank you so much that he bore that cost for all who would turn to him in repentance. And thank you for raising him to life again so that he might lead your worldwide church on its mission to share both the great news of the salvation on offer but also to solemnly warn those uh, who reject him. Please shape us by this. Please shake us out of... Uh, our world's desire that we might be quiet and treat Christ like a
private religious preference. Please help shape our lives and our habits, and our heart and our actions, driven by sharing uh, this wonderful news that uh, all uh, can come and experience all of God's blessing without cost because Christ has paid that for us. Please shape and sharpen us to share this message clearly. And we pray that your spirit and word would be powerfully at work in the lives of those here today, those who we're seeking to share this gospel message with, uh, to bring many more sons and daughters to glory into your family for all eternity. We ask you to work in great power in these, in these ways for your glory and honour, uh, for the good of our world that you remain committed to and will perfect. And uh, we pray for the sake of uh, those uh, yet to hear this good news of Jesus and that we might be spurred on uh, to join with and see the rich blessing of joining with Jesus' great mission to share this news to the farthest corners of the globe. And it's in his precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.